My friends who listen to Future Primitive, well, today we're together with J. Zohara Meyerhoff Hieronymus, DHL. She is an award-winning radio broadcaster, social justice and environmental activist, and professional artist. She founded the Rushcombe Mansion Community Health Center in Baltimore in 1984. She hosted the national radio program Future Talk until 2008 and co-hosts 21st Century Radio with her husband, Robert Hieronymus. The author of several books, she lives in Owens Mills, Maryland. And you can find her online at zoharaonline.com. I'm holding her latest book in my hand right now, and it's called White Spirit Animals, Prophets of Change. Welcome, Zohara. Thank you so much for having me, Joanna. So the only time I heard about... um, White animals was about the white lions in Africa. And uh, so this opens a much bigger door onto these sacred animals coming in at this time. The white spirit animals, you know, people say, well, is every white animal a white spirit animal? Not technically. Though one could say, you know, when a animal is white, unlike the rest of its species, and has two recessive genes, which means they receive this genetic aberration from their parents, even though their parents may not be white. It is not the same thing as albinoism, and that gets confused by a lot of people. However, there seems to be an increase in animals of all kinds producing more white animals among them. And the thing that's unique about a white animal in any species, let's take the white bear of British Columbia and the rainforest, The white animals that are revered as white spirit animals, and in my book, White Spirit Animals, Prophets of Change, I address five what are called apex guardian mammals, mammals that preside over entire ecosystems, whom without ecosystems will come undone much more rapidly than they already are. So it's the white bear, the white lion you mentioned, the white wolf, the white elephant, and the white buffalo, though there are many others. And what white spirit animals share in common, if you actually look at their history and look at the elder lore associated with them, is that they are all said in each of their cultures, whether it's the Zulu of Africa or the Cherokee of the the Eastern United States or of the bear of the first peoples in British Columbia or the elephant by Buddhist and Hindus or the buffalo by Lakota, is that they are all associated with the last ice age and are said to be reminders of our survival 
of the last great earth change is when we and the animals still understood that we are brothers and sisters and they helped us survive. Mm-hmm. So when you look the stories of each of these white spirit animals, including the white whale and the white dolphins, what one discovers is centuries of elder lore in which these animals were revered as harbingers of earth change and as harbingers of the change of consciousness in humanity. So, Zohar, what, uh, I mean, it seems that in this body we have limited time, what led you to choose to offer us this work and this research, this particular you know, subject? All, thank you so much for that question. All of my books come out of waking visions where I have that experience that anybody who has a vision experiences generally of um, seeing a whole matrix of a relationship between the heavens and the earth, as above, so below, as within, so without, the basic hermetic teaching. In this case, it was March of 2013, and I was washing dishes, which I just love. (laughs) Sort of like the proving the Dalai Lama says, look, there's no spirituality outside your daily life. And of course, when we're younger, you know, we go seeking all these bliss experiences. As we get older, we learn that that bliss is from becoming who you are and living your daily life with reverence and humility. So all of a sudden, I was transported into a place on our property we call the path. We have 40 acres, most of it's woods. And I was surrounded suddenly by these amazing, abundant diversity of white spirit animals, the white lion, the white wolf, the white whale, the white shark, a white giraffe, a white buffalo, etc., I recognized, Joanna, that I was standing as if before revered elders. There was just this extraordinary awe experience. And so I immediately said to them, why have you come to me and what can I do for you? And basically, in unison, they asked me to tell their story as a single story, not like one book on a white elephant and then a book on white wolf and a book. They said, by looking at us and examining our cultures together, you'll better appreciate our purpose. And it's true. I learned things from them as a group that I am certain I would not have learned if I had only sort of championed one of these animals. And and one of the things, the surprising lesson that they taught me was that they are all, other than the wolf population who have an alpha male and an alpha female, and the males and females stay together very soon after birth, is the other four, the bear, the lion, the elephant, and buffalo are matrilineal cultures. It is the mother that teaches the entire species how to function, how to eat, how to hunt, how to play, how to build shelter, how to have fun, how to find water, how to get food, how to take care of each other, how to stay safe from predators. And what these animals said throughout the course of writing this book, and the way I wrote it was a whole new experience in itself, was not only did they say, save as many of us as you can, meaning, you know, we can anchor down entire ecosystems, whether it's the savannas or the woods or the prairies or the soil over the entire North American continent, um, but that it's really important to preserve their ecosystems, you know, rather than this habitat destruction we keep doing an appropriation of their territories and the decimation of their species. So it all sort of wrapped up together. But this thing about the matrilineal, they said that we as humans have lost our ethos of care, Mm -hmm. meaning in their cultures, the mother and the child is the center about which the entire tradition revolves, their history, their memory, their stories, 
their their breeding grounds, their travel logs, um, it's matrilineal. And we have lost that. That's very clear as we look around the planet. Well, uh, two things that uh, uh, awakens me was you mentioned awe that when you were on this on this path, you felt awe. And of course, I believe that awe is the north is the north star of the expansion of consciousness. Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because all opens you. I mean, you have to have some humility first to experience all. But humility is really the cornerstone of telepathy. It's a cornerstone of everything of service. But um, transspecies telepathy, which I am a waking telepath, so I've yes. talked to animals my whole life, you know, and done readings for people about their dogs and cats and local animals. But I had never really worked with um Transspecies telepathy the way the shaman cultures do and the medicine men and women. And I was really curious if I could do what they do, which is what's called dream telepathy, you know, where they would dream with each animal. Or if a person came to a shaman and said, you know, the waters are polluted in their um, village or another person comes and says their uncle is, you know, taken over by a dark force of some sort. The shaman will often dream about the particular questioner or situation, dream whether they can do something, dream what they should do, and dream if they should. And those are things dowsers ask, you know, that all of us, when we do at-a-distance, non-local consciousness work, we should always ask, may I, you know, may I do this thing? May I send a prayer? May I douse for a while? Can I? Do I have the ability? And then finally, should I? Is it appropriate within this ecosystem's destiny or this bear's life purpose, you know, that I take part in whatever it is they ask me to do? So there's like this um, awe and then humility and then this recognition that all of life is reciprocal. The universe is reciprocal. So whatever we do for another, they do for us. So these relationships, you know, some people, I think, Joanna, um, have been exposed to shamanism almost like a um, shopping expedition. Yes. Like you can sort of, um, you know, objectify it into a weekend experience. And it's not true. I mean, you can have an experience, but please don't imagine that what you're doing is as deep as you can go. And sometimes it's not safe either to play until you're well-trained. But the thing that I liked about this process of dream telepathy is I showed what the Greeks always have said, you know, that we can dream ourselves well. And as you say about your show, we can redream the world. And so I proved through this book of what it's like to dream with an animal, listen to what they say, and then go follow up with literal, you know, brass tax research mm-hmm. as to whether or not the information they're giving you is credible. Okay, this is, to me, this is very, very important, this interspecies communication link. So do you see yourself as an ambassador, as a translator, as a partner with these sacred species? If I'm allowed to say all of the above, is that an option? All of the above. Yes, of course. Because I have been their, their ambassador, you know, and I am their translator. You know, that's a, it's an interesting thing. You know, people often say to me, well, 
as a telepath and as a visionary and as a psychic and as a futurist, how do you get your information? And I've described it to people as if somebody holds a big movie screen, you know, about a mile high and a mile wide, if you will, Mm -hmm. in front of me. And then I watch an entire thing unfold as a witness and it gets translated as if I'm watching a foreign film and somehow or other our biosystems, our innate unitary mindness of it all, translates whatever foreign language it is, whether it's bear language or crow language or human in another part of the universe language or I guess the other part of our planet would be more specific. Um, And then it gets translated into English so that I understand it. But I think that's why telepathy works, because telepathy is not about language. It's almost dots and dashes. It's zeros and ones. It's Mm -hmm. sort of Mm -hmm. the binary unity language that we all are programmed with. It's light, basically. Is it a full body experience for you? Um, That's a great question. Sometimes, sometimes I have smelled things, sometimes I have sensed being touched by things, but most of the time it's a visual and audio and a sensory kind of experience, but I don't know that I'd say whole body. Right, right. That's a great question, by the way. Yes, yes, because uh, it's as intense for me as every sense that makes me human. But let's mm-hmm. go. Let's go back to these. Uh... Well, I would like to add. There are times, like for instance, Bear as the Earth healer, and yes. Bear is the teacher of healing to natives, and always has been regarded as first of kin and co-creator. Um, Bear was very tactile for me, very oh, intimate, very sensorial, very whole body. I, I just love that phrase. Bear was very tactile for me. That's beautiful. Well, tell us about your tactile friend, Bear, and what you've discovered about Bear, because, I mean, I think a lot of us feel feel Bear. We feel Bear. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, particularly women. You know, women have been called Bear. And you know how we lumber when we're close to term. We lumber around like a bear. And in Europe, people still refer in certain parts of the country to women as bear when she comes. And um, there's a beautiful book written about all these ancient traditions and how the bear is venerated. But, But bear, you know, firstly, they have a life that's 25 to 35 years long. Their cubs stay with them, you know, two to three years. The thing that's so interesting to me is that bear has a long association in traditions worldwide with shape-shifting between a woman and a bear. Mm. And so there are many, many elder stories about bear becoming woman or woman becoming bear, even stories of um, somebody following bear up to the heavens and then watching bear take off their white coat, and it's a female. And what they would say in shamanism is that's code for shape-shifting. One of the beautiful teachings that Bear is presenting to us now is that with earth changes upon us, she keeps urging us to prepare housing and food now for millions, if not billions of people who are going to be disrupted and dislocated. And in the same way Bear prepares for winter, she's urging us to prepare for earth changes. Uh That this uh, ability to plan ahead is not fear, it's reverence for life. 
Um, another beautiful thing about bear is that the bear mother and child are represented as our pole star, our big dipper, and our little dipper. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when you look at the significance they hold as being where all the longitudes of earth come together, then we're learning something about bear mother and mothering and bearing witness and bearing life is that it's where all is unified. Um, I have many dreams that I share in the book about following bear around and bear showed me how they taught the natives about smudge and smoke medicine, meaning using herbs for healing. So they are, you know, if you ever need to heal and you feel that you need help, call on bear. But something I was going to say a little earlier, Joanna, about people sort of taking workshops on the weekend and then calling an animal their totem spirit guide and then calling in the guide and asking them what they can do and the guide tells them and then they don't do it. Yes. It's very important to take these relationships seriously, um, whether it's a, in the visible realm or the invisible realm, because these are real expressions of real energy, of real essence. Um, so if we tell Bear we're going to help Bear, then we need to do that. Whatever it is, it is, you know, however you decide to do it, whether it's sending a donation to a bear sanctuary in your state or your country or helping to stop bear hunting so that we can preserve these gorgeous apex mammals all over the world, which and of course, they're facing extinction. OK, excellent. So take take action. Take action. Exactly. Yes. Now, um, white bear, where White bear is not polar bear, right? No, white bear is not polar bear. The white bear is native to the British Columbian rainforest. And it's said that when Creator made the earth and we had survived the glacial changes, that one out of ten bears was made white on these islands, the Jobral Islands in um, the rainforest there. And the rainforest, of course, we know are so vital to our survival. Without them, we and all life will perish on the planet because they have so much to do with improving the oxygen that we breathe and dealing with so much of the carbon that we have to, you know, actually transmute. So bear is native to these islands and there was some beautiful work. You know, each of the animals, I share their various animal champions, one or two in particular, and Charlie Russell has done beautiful books on the white spirit bear. And I urge people to look those up online and get them because he's lived with the bears in Russia as well, the grizzly bear, and has shown the world that bears, and it's really true up until a few decades ago in this own, in our own country of North America, people would go raspberry and blueberry and blackberry hunting with black bears sunning right beside them. They're, they're very um, gentle beings. And they will not hurt you unless, A, they're starving to death, or B, you've encroached on their territory, or three, you're too close to their cubs. You know, as Charlie pointed out, because he's walked with Bear and talked with Bear and been friend with Bear his entire lifetime, um, the only time they'll come in contact with a human is, A, they may use human as a decoy from another bear, meaning they don't mean to hurt you, they're just using you as a prop in the wilderness to avoid another bear B, they are trying to communicate and most if you just let them be will leave you alone they have no interest in eating or harming human it's just not who or what they are you know they're predators in the sense that they have to hunt for their food but most of the time they eat what's left over from other other animals kills and they're herbivores as well they're omnivores so they eat actually a good deal of berries and nuts and fruits 
Um, and the white bear in particular is a salmon fisher because that's where the salmon are so plentiful. But this image we've created of the bear being this awful, you know, man-eating, horrible terrorist in the woods is just not borne out by fact at all. Well, this this comes up again and again and again, uh, that uh, feeling that these cohabitors, these these other spirits that cohabit the planet with us are dangerous to us. It's just another form of promoting separation. Yes, uh-huh, absolutely, and domination. You know, it's, it's interesting on that theme because people often cite Darwin's survival of the fittest, and oh, that's yeah. not really what he said. No, and no. it's interesting that the one thing he prided himself on of all his work was species equality. He said there was no such thing as a human species entitlement. Humans aren't better than animals. We're not even more evolved. We're just different. We have different purposes. We're kin. We're brothers and sisters. You know, people say, well, why do you say that so, Hara? That just sounds like so strange. I said, well, if you think about it, all these animals have family. They all have memory. They all have community. They all have food preferences. They all play. They all mourn. They all laugh. They all weep. They they do all the things that we do. And scientists now know for certain that their brain anatomy is not different than our own. So all of this horrendous multi-billion dollar prison system or species prison, the zoos and the animal torture and the factory farms and the science, you know, they um, pretend that you can do this because somehow or other they're less developed and they don't feel pain. And all of this is just nonsense. Now, uh, I'm feeling some uh, tingling, some serious tingling. So I, I want to throw this, this invitation out to you, Zohara. It seems to me that we are just tip of the iceberg beginning to realize that entitlement is the disease that is threatening all of us, all sentient beings on this planet. Would you, uh, would you tune in and talk to us about what you feel about this, this disease of entitlement? It, it is an illness, and it comes along with the Cartesian model we've been brainwashed with for 500 some years, which says that A, we're only beings in our bodies and our experience ends at the skin's edge, and that when we die, there's no consciousness. So when you add those two things together, it makes an extraordinary um, template for selfishness and greed, narrow-mindedness and um, ego development, rather than a cultivation of the higher mind and the heart. You know, that's why the Buddhist tradition and the elephant is so crucial in human experience. I mean, the elephant is an example and the white elephant, because they're so revered, um, have always taught us about compassion. You know, compassion is really the bedrock of who we are and what we're here to do. I had an extraordinary experience, actually, at the end of writing this book. And it was a very difficult four years for me because I had to experience all the pain these animals have experienced as a result of human behavior. And it was actually a buffalo who at the very end of my book was standing with me above the plains where this extraordinary range where 60 million some buffalo 
used to range. And I'd like to read you exactly what I wrote, if you don't mind. Yes, please. Quote, at the end of my four-year odyssey as an ambassador for Earth's great mammalian traditions, I dreamt I was standing beside a single majestic male buffalo. He was a cherished elder friend, a tribal chief, representing the 60 million great buffalo that once grazed on the North American continent as preserver, nurturer, and life giver. We were on a mountaintop plateau overlooking an entire cosmopolitan city where their range used to be. Standing together with such a broad scale view, he shared that, quote, when any one of us, human, animal, plant, or mineral, fulfills our purpose on earth, we experience the greatest love there is, unquote. And I share that as sort of an antidote to the reality of our sense of species entitlement, which is the most distorted, malevolent um, kind of debasing of humans that can happen because humans are co-creators. Humans are God-like. And we are not only entitled, but obligated to refine ourselves so that the choices we make, whatever they are during the course of our day, the trajectory of our life or our many lifetimes, is do our very best to try to elevate each situation we encounter within ourselves and outside of us. And that's what all the animals teach. You have an interesting uh, chapter, The Power of Uncut Hair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was a a fun little piece of history. Um, You know, hair, the Native Americans, you will notice, and many indigenous tribal peoples worldwide don't cut their hair, male and female. The reason is that the hair is an extension of our nervous system. It's an antennae. So I tell this this truth that during the Vietnam War, when they were recruiting trackers from Native American tribes in this country, they, like all enlistees, were told they had to cut their hair. They warned the military, if you cut our hair, we're going to lose all or some of our talents. And that is what happened. When they cut trackers' hair, they no longer had the same capacity. Then they decided to do a study, you know, like a control study. So they compared trackers whose hair wasn't cut and trackers whose hair was cut. And they found that the one whose hair wasn't cut did a better job as they said they would. So from then on, Native Americans who joined the military as trackers were told not to cut their hair. Hmm. And it's funny because I have long hair and I'd really like to go back to having very short hair, which I had as a child. But I keep hesitating because I think, oh, my Lord, what's it going to do to my talents? Yeah, yeah. Delilah, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Well, I'm I'm fond of long hair, too. So I'm, I'm totally with you. I couldn't I just couldn't imagine having short, spiky hair. Shall we go back to, uh, shall we go back to Lion and Credo Mutva, sure. the golden-hearted mm-hmm. alchemist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the white lion, when you look at its history, was considered the queen of heaven. And when you look at the Mesopotamian, Babylonian, Sumerian cultures, which have matriarchies and revered women um, who were queens and leaders and prophets as Devorah was in the ancient Hebrew tradition, 
the lion has always represented the noble hearted. Um, it's also about our ability to work together, to see into the future, to know what's coming, to hear ahead of time what there is. But as the guardian of alchemy, it's always considered that the lion is sort of like the green emerald gem of the noble hearted that's purified by the rays of love. So the alchemist was always trying to transmute the lower emotions and baser metals into gold. So the lion is teaching us that in order to transmute our baser tendencies of greed or lust or anger or whatever they are, we need to focus on our noble hearted purpose, which is protection of the whole earth. And that's what the lion is assigned. Each of these mammals that what I was saying have a prescient purpose that they are assigned by the elder traditions that revere them. And so while lion is considered guardian of the entire world, bear the northern part of our planet, wolf is really the guardian, the primary shapeshifter who guards us in and out of life, in the continuum of life and death. Um, elephant is guardian of the Milky Way. Wolf, by the way, is also considered guardian of the Milky Way Road. So works with Elephant, who is presumably the great mother that stirs the Milky Way and brings down everything that manifests. And Buffalo is considered to be the guardian of the spirit that comes from the north and the actual restorer of soil. So each of them, like the lion, as the noble-hearted guardian of the planet, is telling us that the great alchemy we do in a lifetime is purifying our hearts to pure love so that our intention is not selfish, but to be of service, to recognize we are not born for ourselves alone. We are each incarnate and born for the world as well. Do you see a co-creation between uh, Gaia, the living earth, and the, uh, the purity and the color of these animals? Very much so. You know, it is Mother Earth who depends on the animals for her entire body to stay intact. You know, Earth can do without humans. At this point, we're not necessarily the great enabler or elevator. We're tending towards destruction, though that's changing, fortunately. We're about to move into an ascension again and go back up the ladder of life, but we're still coming down. You know, whether it's the Maya tradition or the Hindu tradition or Kabbalistic prophecy, we're still coming down the tree of life as humans. We have about another 200 years before, as I say, the elevator hits the basement and then we go all the way back up. But Gaia, the consciousness of Earth, um, graces each one of us with an opportunity to help her be stable. And that's through our love, our attention to our local communities and our local ecosystems and our local um, economies, because that's really what we now know will give us the greatest resilience and give Earth her greatest opportunity to sort of shake the ravages of what is on her body, whether it's polluted waters or polluted air, or soil that needs to be restored so that all life can be healthy. You know, one of the things, the other thing these animals taught me about Gaia is that what we can do to make the earth more resilient and balanced is not an unknown charge. It's quite simple. It's to restore the soil everywhere. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean creating a sustainable and subtle, if you will, energetic, like permaculture or other kinds of gardening that 
appreciate that the spirit of all is in the food. So if we restore our soil by adding glacial rock dust or turning it over properly, stop the tilling, stop destroying the microbes that are in our soil so that we have greater nutrition, everything grows from that. And when you do this at the local level, um, what happens is the community makes much better decisions about land use, air exposure. Like in our state of Maryland, we stopped fracking, the same thing they did in New York and Vermont. But it took a group of individuals who decided that's not happening here. And even though everybody said you'll never win, the lobbyists are too powerful, what what I believe, back to your question about Gaia and the invitation she has made to each one of us, mm-hmm. is what she's saying is protect your own backyard. Take care of your own garden. Take care of your own community. And it's not that we're not global people, planetary citizens. We are. But right now, the global um, corporatocracy and the misuse of resources, economy, and talents, um, the only thing really that can undo that in a peaceful way is not through power, is not through war, God forbid, is not through these horrendous polarizations, but it's through love. Love your local community. Love your local waters. Love your local neighborhood grocer. You know, after the hurricanes hit Texas recently in our country here, the communities that were most resilient and bounced back within three days serving food and housing and collaboration were those communities that had CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture, who had already their um, cooperative food co-ops and farmers markets. And it's really a lesson to all of us if we want to preserve our gorgeous, beloved planet and we want to go through these next 200 years in a way that will have a happy ending and a good ending for the earth because the earth will get rid of us if she needs to, being humans, um, and save as many animals as she can, um, is that we already know the answers. That's the thing that blows my mind, Joanna. It's like the animals keep telling me all these most obvious things that other humans have already figured out. Let's go plant two billion trees. Yes, that's the answer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course. So I I think that the answers, um, and that's why telepathy and dream telepathy, if anybody in the audience says, well, I don't really know, I feel overwhelmed and it's just too much to do, just ask. Go in your backyard or out on your balcony if you live in an apartment and say, what can I do to make this a better place? And it might be simply having a plant out there, you know, or it might be in your backyard having bird seed for the birds. Anything we can do now to support the natural hierarchy in each ecosystem, the better off everybody will be and the happier everybody will be. And the more in tune we will become with nature and the animals who are always talking to us. They're always giving us anything we need. If we want wisdom from a tree, you just have to be very patient. Listen mm-hmm. and don't judge what you hear. You know, I think oh, we get in our own way. We're constantly judging and thinking we don't know what we're doing. And how could the tree tell me that it needed more birds? I mean, what's that silliness? But it's not silly. All life is a, is a wavelength of light. And so everything has its own discussion going on well i i love how uh, i can go into a room that uh, have companion my companion plants and at times i can hear them screaming at me and i go oh 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 sorry i forgot to give you water it's really true it's very true there was a plant that had this disease, and I mean, it sounds so silly, and I put it outside. To just I thought I'd just let it go with the air. But it said, don't you put me out here to die. 
So I took it back inside where it's dying. But it wanted to be back inside with the other plants and said, if I'm going to die, I want to be in my community. And so trees are like that. You know, people don't think that trees are community, but they are. And they talk to each other and their underground root systems are far more broad and wide than just the tree standing next to it. So, you know, the trees, because we're trees based in Kabbalah, which I'm a student of, we are the design of a tree with our roots in heaven, basically. And um, so we have a lot to learn from plants and trees because we're more like a plant with chlorophyll than anything else. We're light beings. We thrive on the light. I'm, I'm perceiving you as a wise woman. So I want to ask you this question. These things that you say and think and be are seem very right to me. So I want to ask you the question, why do so many people hate and feel hated by this way of thinking? I think it's fear. Fear of losing control. You know, when you've had a mindset, which is really the result of cultural mind control, you know, it's, 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 it, there was this beautiful milligram study that showed obedience leads to genocide. I've been a very disobedient person my entire life, and I came in that way. You know, I came in yelling, screaming, don't tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are some souls that are just come here on purpose as courageous way showers. Then there are souls that come here and they're exhausted from some other lifetime and they're going to be followers. And followers tend to doubt themselves. You know, if somebody listening to Alden says, I could never be a leader, it's only because they doubt the inherent capacity that they have from somebody telling them they're not good enough, they're not strong enough. So I think hate is really the opposite of fear, not love. I don't think hate and love really are um, polarities. Uh Um, I I think that fear is the polarity to love because fear is like a contraction. So we'd say that one is an expansion, love is an expansion, Mm -hmm. and fear is a contraction. Hate is just sort of one of the tones of fear because Uh when we say we hate something, that's what we do. We contract, we get ready to eliminate it, destroy it, get it out of the way, whatever it is, whether it's a feeling or a person, or a place. And so it seems that the the exercise we as humans need to do more of with our children um, is to remind them that they are sacred, holy beings, and that their words, their thoughts, and their deeds are literally shaping the world to come. So when people say, you know, I can only be a follower, I'll only do what I'm told, I'll never break the rules, I'll never push against my boss, I'll never tell my husband no, I'll, you know, whatever it is. Um, it's this fear of not having boundaries imposed. So fundamentalist people would say are very young souls who without these extraordinary boundaries would feel rudderless, like they wouldn't know what to do. Oh. So some of it could be the age of the souls that are incarnating. You know, and some would say that politicians and those who are seeking power and rulership over kind of the intermediate class. And then the older souls, people like you and me who have been round and round and round, and we've gotten so beat up by anything that's egoic (laughs) that we've learned the hard way. (laughs) Better drop that in the river if I want to swim. 
Um, so for myself, I used to be very angry, aggressive fighter. It yeah. didn't matter what it was as an activist. I was full of anger and kill the other side, you know, whatever it was. It took me a lifetime, Joanna, to really appreciate that people were holding positions that were so disproven either by the heart or science because they were so afraid of what they couldn't control. And that meant opening up to either a new way of feeling in themselves, a new way of seeing themselves, or a new way of experience others. So um, we're at a critical time, though. And yes. so I, for those of us who feel it, see it, and want it so badly to bring humanity to harmony mm -hmm. um, is to have more compassion for all those who in the past I would simply say, God, I hate them. You know, yeah. I'm telling the truth. I remember as a kid fighting against a particular spray for gypsy moth. And I went to the um, wherever it was that the Department of Ag was yeah. coming. And this man stood up and said, oh, well, he'd feed this poison to his children. And I started weeping in the audience. I was just weeping because it was at that moment I realized he really believed what he was saying. So we have to appreciate mind control is so prevalent in our country, in our world right now. And the strong fundamentalism is a form of mind control. And anytime people are told not to exercise their freedom, not to have free choice, not to have free will, you be very careful who you're aligning yourself with because that's fundamentalism. No matter where it is, whether it's a church, a mosque, somebody's household, somebody's business, anytime you're denied your opportunity to think for yourself and to act in a responsible way independently, you would do better to find another community to affiliate with. Do you still experience fear? Of course I do. Okay. Of great. course I do. And I have children, so, and they're going to have children, and I'm sure I'll have fear, but fear has a role. I mean, there's healthy fear, um, which can save your life. And as a whistleblower, for 10 years as a daily commentator, Three hours a day, I blew the whistle on FBI, CIA, military, this, that, local, national, international, IMF. I lived in fear every day, and it's not healthy. It's not good for your body. And it does create post-traumatic stress, which our whole world is suffering in varying degrees as either subject, perpetrator, or both. So this post-traumatic stress disorder creates dissociation where people will do things, anybody, do things we know aren't right, whether it's letting a cigarette butt fly out the window or dumping paint in the local stream, or worse, you know, hurting somebody or hurting an animal or not intervening. Dissociation is also, like you said, this entitlement, I think the greatest mental disorder planet-wide, where we sort of go to this comfortable room of denial. It's a, it's a built-in mechanism that we had to help us evolve. But now we're at a point in evolution where we shouldn't dissociate from the pain we cause others, the planet, other species, or even ourselves. So I don't know. We all have a lot of work to do, every one of us. And that's also what the animals say. Save as many of them as you can. Improve life around you. And as I add, and they teach, end the life within us. Mm -hmm. We are inside of us what's happening outside in the world. Perhaps as we come around, I will, I will ask you to uh, speak to us about the love that has motivated you and carried you through those four years of writing this book, this 
communication of love with these creatures that have come. Thank you so much. Yeah, love is really the root. You know, I, I say in the book, I started this book when I was six years old. I'm now 64. Um, and that's true. At six years of age, I actually prayed. And anytime we pray for something, I said that it became like the pole star in my childhood sky. Um, anytime we pray for something, our soul revolves around it and quickens to do it. And I wanted to talk to the animals. I thought, you know, like a foreign traveler, I'd learned how to interpret a bird's call or a dog's bark. And I didn't realize until I was a little older that there's this thing called telepathy and transspecies communication. Uh, it, I have always loved the animal kingdom my whole life. I have always served the animal kingdom in some capacity. I never charge for anything that I do, whether it's for a bird that somebody brings me who's dying and they want me to just tend to it as it crosses over mm-hmm. or somebody calling me about their cat or now the work. Like last night, I dreamt all night long about bear and finally realized that when I woke up that on my birthday, I'm going to make a donation to a bear sanctuary somewhere in Maryland if there is one. So, you know, sometimes the the love is the connecting fabric matrix of all. It doesn't matter what it is between the tree and the river, the river and the star, the star and your neighbor, the neighbor and the trash man, the trash man and the builder. Um, it is love that we are all here on earth to experience. And it is love that we are all here not to master, but to be part of, because it is love that gives us our highest wisdom. You know, when we open our heart, and I haven't always been a very loving person. I don't want anybody to think, oh, she's some great, you know, phenomenal human. Well, I have to work at it just like everybody else. I have likes and dislikes and programming from childhood or culture that may or may not be healthy or lifetimes or genetic inheritances from bloodlines whether it's running from the Cossacks or some other Russian history I have flowing in my veins. Mm -hmm. But we each have an opportunity to experience, as the buffalo said, the greatest love there is. And the greatest love there is is when each one of us unfolds ourselves to be full of the light that is constantly being emanated to us. You know, I say, like they teach in Kabbalah, in Ashlagi in Kabbalah, We're all receivers and emanators. We're always receiving light and sending light. We're either selfish or selfless. And generally, it's a combination of the two. So love is like that. We just need to kind of open up, soften around our lives, soften around our own inner experience. You know, PMH Atwater says that 75% of our internal conversations are negative to ourselves. (laughs) So we, we have to love ourselves, too, and appreciate and have compassion for our mistakes. You know, I make them too. And I have to be compassionate, not angry at myself and say, well, you can do better next time. Try to appreciate what you said or did that could have been better. And why did you do it? And I have to say, in most instances, when I look at a misdeed, not that I've deliberately done something awful to somebody, but I didn't help them as I could have, it was because of fear. So that's how I know fear is the opposite of love. There was a man who wanted some wood, and I pointed him to the wood in the woods. Meanwhile, this whole stack of wood, and I could have given it to him. This was like eight years ago, and it still haunts me to this day, like some horrible life mistake. And I realized it was because I was afraid if I gave him the wood that day, he'd come and steal my wood every time I wasn't there. Uh, Crazy. Yes. Craziness. I'm afraid. Me too. (laughs) Me too. Yeah, so... So these little, all of us, you know, I don't know any perfect human. And if there is one, I probably won't get the opportunity to meet them (laughs) because (laughs) I don't carry the vibration that would probably be very good for them. But 
who knows? You know, I do my best and I encourage everybody else to know, don't judge yourself horribly. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to your neighbor. Be loving to your animals. Be loving to nature that we are the co-creators. And that's why the creator gave us this capacity to co-create, to manifest in matter, to bring things down from the invisible into the material world. And we have every tool we need to make this planet Eden. I know that for a fact. We are all programmed with the template for Eden. And that's why the more off we go, the more crazy everybody's getting. Because our innate program is for harmony, love, and perfection. That's how we're programmed. And then we come down, we have all our individual experiences, and we get a little distorted and clogged up. So we just need to clear our pipes, and the best way to do that is to be of service. It doesn't matter what. It really doesn't matter whether it's picking up trash in your neighborhood or being a heart surgeon. What matters is how we do what we do, Joanna. It's not the thing itself. It's the investment of our intention and the attention we give to what we intend to do. Because those are the two things that open up our higher consciousness. We state an intention to make our ecosystems more resilient, to save the bear, the lion, the wolf, the elephant, and buffalo. And then we watch like a lighthouse to what our attention then sees in our scope of view. And for every person, it might be something different. And don't diminish and don't demean the little things you do every day of your life. These are huge acts of shaping the universe tomorrow. Any good deed, any kind thought, any good word. These are these are the tools of the speaking human. Beautiful. I believe it. Dear soul sister. Yeah, I feel the same way. Good, good. Well, much gratitude for being with us today. And I just want to remind people, the book is White Spirit Animals, Prophets of Change. Check it out. Okay. Till next time, Zahara. Thank you so much.